Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. Well, first of all, welcome to the uh, post-Easter apocalypse, kind of a recovery period. Um, I want to have a little bit of a conversation with you today. Uh, First of all, let's talk masks for a minute. Um, I hate them. I find them restrictive. I find them annoying. I find them distracting. They fog up my glasses. Um, They put moisture on my face. Um, I hate them on you guys because I can't see. I can tell you're still going to sleep because your eyes drop. Um, (laughs) But I can't see the expressions. I like, well, most of you, I like your expressions. Um, it's, It's disengaging. It's disruptive. It's so many different things. Okay, now before I lead you too far down that path, I'm just saying, that's how I feel. Having said that, the first time I encountered a surgical mask outside of a medical facility was years ago, years ago. And um, I was traveling overseas, and I encountered it several times over several years of time. Every single time, it was from someone who was Asian in their uh, ethnicity. I'd be on a plane. They'd have a mask on, or I'd be um, in a tourist site. They'd have a mask on. And I remember in my ignorance at that time thinking, I'm just being honest, I'm like, wow, are you really that fearful of us? You know, that you're going to catch something from one of us other people or whatever else? And it kind of annoyed me. I thought it was foolish because it was a little stupid in my ignorance. As time went on, I discovered that in some Asian cultures, That was not why they wore the mask. They wore the mask because whenever they would get a cold or the flu or just a common disease of any kind, it was considered polite. It was considered considerate of the community to protect the rest of the community. And so I then realized anytime I saw someone with a mask, they were actually probably had a cold or some kind of um, ailment of some type, and they were watching out for the rest of us. And it changed my perspective at that time. A lot. Now, the Asian communities often have a greater sense of community uh, and identify that way more than, say, Western, especially Americans. We're, we're a very individualistic, rights-driven people. Everyone has a right to catch whatever I've got. And so we've never practiced that until this recent time. I bring that up to say that we have initiated the protocols we have not because of any state mandate, not of any political considerations whatsoever. We've done it because it's our understanding from our own medical people within our own community that's the best way to be loving, to be kind, and to be thoughtful 
to those around us. I don't say this because anyone's complained. I'm saying it because I'm annoyed at this point in time. If, you're annoyed, if I'm annoyed, I suspect you are too. I've said that we're in the fourth quarter of the game. It may be a very long quarter, and it's possible we may be heading for overtime. And in that, we need to consider how we are acting as a church and as a believer and what is motivating us. As I think of this, and I think of my experience traveling, and I think of these individuals who I didn't understand why they were doing it, and in my mind at least I ridiculed, I now understand that whether they understood it or not, whether they were believers or not, they were in fact practicing 1 Corinthians 13, and something that we need to be doing as well. Love is patient, and love is kind. In their actions, we need to consider that. It doesn't envy, it's not boastful. It is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, not easily, keeps no record of wrongs, loves does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I find scripture very annoying, to be honest, to what I want to do a lot of times. It says love never fails. So, I wanted to speak to you on that briefly, but what I want to talk to you about today on a little broader view, which this is actually part of a bit, is the church. Acts chapter 2, and don't flip your eyes to the screens because no scripture is going to show up on that screen today. This will be disconcerting for some of you, okay? Now, um, if you have a Bible, <laughs> of course not. I was going to say if you have a Bible, turn to it, but yeah, you wouldn't be bringing that to church. Um, if you have an iPhone, and you want to look up the scripture, you may. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Later on in the chapter, in verse 21, it says, as Peter's calling out to the various people that were there, what had taken place, um, he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A bunch of people there were, for the, were there for the Passover. As he's speaking in tongues, they're hearing things in their own language, and they're caught by this. One of them says, a couple of people say, well, this guy's drunk. And I always love his response. It's 9 in the morning. Who's drunk at 9 a.m.? Don't answer that. Um, going on in verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were, notice this phrase, Listen to it, because you're not seeing it. Cut to the heart. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. In verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and to prayer. At this point, let us pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, I ask for this extraordinary moment in time here that you would temper my own spirit and heart. I pray, Lord, that you would open our minds and our spirits to receive the truth of your word. And that I would stay in the path of that and not deviate. So speak to us this morning, Lord God. By your presence, I pray. Speak to us. In your name I ask it. 
Amen. This is the beginning of the church. Jesus has died and has been resurrected. These individuals who were once reeling with dismay and depression are now filled with hope and transformation. Something radical has occurred, something incredible that has marked these people, so much so that every one of them is going to um, die rather than recant of the truth of what they have seen and what they've witnessed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is something incredible that is breaking forth at this point in time that draws people in. There was a sense of idealism and um, joy and, and, and brotherhood that, that pulled this together in this early form of the church. It spread out from there, and as the centuries unwound, the church found itself continuing on um, in different forms, different expressions, some of them good, some of them not so good. Um, the Crusades were a couple of hundred really bad years for the church. Inquisition wasn't all that great either. But in between that, there were tremendous things that happened in and through the church. Kenneth Scott Latourette's seven-work volume, A History of the Expansion of Christianity, this one-time professor of church history at Yale University, states this about the Christian faith. Quote, we have and properly had much to say about the effects of Christianity upon the collective life of communities, nations, and mankind as a whole. Here has been the most potent force which mankind has known for the dispelling of illiteracy, for creation of schools, and for the emergence of new types of education. The universities, centers for pushing forward the boundaries of human knowledge, were at the outset largely Christian creations. Music, architecture, painting, poetry, and philosophy have owed some of their greatest achievements to Christianity. Democracy, as it was known in the 19th and 20th centuries, was in large part the outgrowth of Christian teaching. The abolition of slavery was due chiefly to Christianity. The most hopeful movements for the regulation of war, for the mitigation of the sufferings entailed by war, and the eventual abolition abolition, rather, of war, owed their inception chiefly to the Christian faith. The nursing profession of the 19th century had the same origin. And the extension of Western methods of surgery and, me and, and medicine um, basically were extended to the non-Western world, predominantly through uh, Christian missionaries. The elevation of the status of women owed an incalculable debt to Christianity. Christian ideals made for monogamy and for a special kind of family life. He concludes by saying, no other single force has been so widely potent for the relief of suffering brought by famine and for the creation of hospitals and orphanages. Christianity, with all its variations in the church, with all its failings, has at the core, though, been a tremendous force for positive and for good in this entire world. One of the things that's been said, and recently there's an attempt increasingly to abolish Christianity. As Tim Keller said, we're no longer people now that are in an argument with someone else. We are now viewed to be the problem. If Christianity just ceased to exist, if the concepts of sin and guilt and repentance and redemption just didn't exist, then we'd all be so happy. And so there's this assault. And within this, a lot of misapplication and untruths. One of the stated charges is that historically the number one cause of war has been that of religion. Now, there's a work done by Philip and Axelrod, a three-volume encyclopedia of wars. It chronicles some 1,763 wars that have been waged over the course of history, 
all the way up till 2004. We've added a few since then. They found that only 123 of history's wars have a religious backbone, which means that 93% of all wars have been secular in nature. Of the 7% that were religious, 4% were attributed to Islam, leaving only 3% for all other religions, including Christianity. There's been a tremendous contribution in Christianity, and yet there's also some real questions in regards to it, especially as how it's practiced in the West and especially in this country. There was an advertisement for a movie recently that I saw that I just thought was really kind of funny. And because I thought it was funny, I thought you should take a look at it and decide for yourself whether you think it's funny or not as well, too. We all have different types of humor. So here's the clip. Church people. I told you if we broke attendance records, I'd get the church logo tattooed on my arm. Skip, remember back when we first started? All we did was preach the gospel. Ooh, Superman works. I like Superman. Guy, what do you think? What happened to you? Me? Your dad is the one with the gimmicks. The power of the Holy Spirit propels us. I just went to church to get back to the gospel. Problem is you're trying to get your message across. Uh, the gospel? Right, right, right. And ain't nobody listening to that. Man. A good Friday and Easter. I need something big. Amen? Bigger than the resurrection. Bigger than anything we've ever done. National headlines. Preach on the death and resurrection of Jesus. An actual crucifixion. Uh-oh. By placing the nails through your palms in the right place, we hope to avoid major nerve damage. Operation Stop Skip is a go. That's awesome. You have to cancel this good Friday stunt. Don't be so dramatic, honey. Ooh, I like the rusty ones. I'm sorry, just that one line alone is worth the whole thing. Oh, I love the rusty ones. It's not a bad movie. Uh, it does a good job of portraying the gospel eventually, but it's speaking to the degree to which the church in America has become prone more to gimmicks and to um, events than it is to simply preaching the gospel and speaking in regards to that. There was a church years ago I remember reading about, oh, incidentally, the reason why the guy did the movie was because a friend of his came to him and was all excited that this church he'd heard about was actually going to do a crucifixion on Easter. Now, it turned out that he'd misunderstood it, but the advertising certainly implied that. And the guy who made the movie said the fact that he could even consider the fact that that actually would have happened or could have happened tells the direction of where things had gone. Um, we, uh, years ago, had a church that we know of in Pennsylvania who on Easter, and I'm not sure why they did this, they had a person dressed up as a rabbit carrying a cross down the aisle being beaten by Roman soldiers. And I think somehow they were trying to contrast Easter with whatever. All we know is that in our lexicon as a staff, anytime we think we've gone too far, we say, are we beating the bunny? <laughs> okay. There's something bizarre with that. <sighs> the pastor who skydived had that broadcast sanctuary, then walks into the church. All the different things that can be done as a way of grabbing attention. There's a church that has um, advocated to other churches to do spontaneous baptisms. And what they do is they, at the end of a service, will call people for baptism. 
And when they do, they said, make sure you have 50 of your own people planted in the crowd. And the moment you say that, they jump up and run forward, and that encourages others to jump up and run forward. Now, these are 50 people who have already been baptized who are Christians. That's manipulative. Um, I remember when the pandemic hit last year, and everyone thing was unsure. And I remember in the first week or two, coming across a church that was pushing hard to its congregation, hey, in this time of unsettledness and disturbance, don't forget the church. Make sure that you're giving your tithes and your offerings and things of this nature to the church. And I found that disturbing. We, we stayed away from any such conversations for months, knowing that everyone was unsettled. Okay, at this point in time, if we are done here, you can feel like I'm railing and attacking all these other things. I don't mean to do that. And I'm certainly not trying to raise us up as a paragon of virtue. We have our own issues. What I'm wanting us to look at is, what does it mean to be a part of the church? The reason I like the clip is because it's pointing out how all these things are alien to the gospel. It's a lighthearted approach, at least, to take. In this time of pandemic, we've had tons of distractions as it is already. C.S. Lewis used to make the statement that God whispers to us in our prosperity, but he shouts to us in our pain. If that's the case, then God's been shouting at us for probably over a year now or so. And one of the questions we have to ask is, what is it that we are hearing in the midst of this? What have you heard? What has penetrated your mind as the church? For some people, it has made a transformation that means they will never gather as we're gathering here right now ever again. They have various reasons for that. Some of it is the hypocrisy and the failure of key leaders over this period of time. Others just have become comfortable with watching things totally by a live stream. They can switch it like they do television programs. Um, for others, they just believe increasingly that, that they can worship God by themselves more freely. The great pastor D.L. Moody had a man who was raising such a question when they were seated together at a cabin watching a roaring fire. The man was stating his case as to why he would now just kind of worship his, on his own. The, the failures of the church, the weakness of the church, the church leaders, the things of issues of money, all the different things with it. Moody, great pastor that he was, didn't answer. All he did is take a poker and he reached out and took one of the embers of the fire and moved it away by itself. And they watched together as that separate ember slowly died out. And the man said, I get it. When we are separated, we're easily overcome. I don't say that as a fear issue, I'm just saying as a matter of fact. When we're separated, it's easier for us to grow cold in the process of things. When I worship God by myself, it can be a powerful moment for me, and it's important that I do that separately, as it is for you. But I'll tell you, even when I'm gone for a week or two on vacation somewhere else, to come into this gathering, and I'll go to another church, and that has impact for me, sometimes powerfully so. There's something about coming back in with fellowship with people I have known for years. There's something about coming together in a place that has a familiarity, that, that means something in that. One of our young people had said to me recently, we were talking, and they said how prior to the pandemic, the church was just a building. But since the pandemic, they realized that the church to them now means people, that it means a community, that it means individuals that they are in relationship with. 
And so one of the things I'd ask again even is, what is your view of the church? Is it this ancient history of success or failure? Is it the current issues of hypocrisies and ups and downs and all the other issues? Is it just a matter of gathering on a Sunday morning? Or does the church of Jesus Christ mean something different to you? Do you come waiting to be fed various things, or do you come with some expectation of your own? There's all these distortions of what the church is. I've heard it referred to as a gas station. You empty your tank and you come here to fill up. Okay, not bad, but I don't really expect anything of my local gas station. I certainly don't give it anything other than my money. That's it. There's other, no other transaction. And I only go there when I need filling up. I don't go hang out at the gas station as a general rule. There's limitations to that view. Some view it as a movie theater, a place of entertainment, a place where there's a moment that holds your time and attention, and, and that's okay to have moments and have, have emotional expressions, but if that's the only thing, then there's a shallowness to that. Or maybe it's a drugstore. I have a need, I have an illness, I have a sickness, and so this is where I go for my therapy, and, and there is a place of healing that should be present here. But if it is just therapeutic, it's dealing with our emotional issues and not with our spiritual issues. Or the big box retailer, the idea that, that here is all the different programs that I'll ever need for my children and for myself and specialized ones for my specific needs and all the different programmatic aspects that are part of it. None of these are necessarily wrong in and of themselves. But none of these capture fully the idea of being the church. Church is a step of activity that is to be engaged and not just passively received. I find it really interesting sometimes, the things that we latch on to. Now, don't take this wrong, this next statement. A few weeks ago, I, I used coffee as an illustration of a hunger for God. And, and there were those of you that were struck by the fact that I put a layer of cinnamon upon my grounds. Now, to be fair, only the truly righteous do do that. But it was interesting to me how the week after that, I received several different emails and texts saying how different ones of you had applied that and your delight that you discovered in that. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. And then I thought, okay, wait a minute. I just received a number of texts and comments about applying a technique for drinking coffee. I don't recall one communication I had saying, oh, incidentally, that whole thing about having a real hunger for God, I find that has stirred me, and I'm actually doing steps pursuing God more deeply. Again, I'm not condemning. I'm saying, what do we latch on to? Do you come with an expectation to be filled? Nothing wrong with that. Do you come with an expectation to be healed? Nothing wrong with that. Do you come for the needs of programs for you or your children or something else? Nothing wrong with that. Do you come for a moment to be moved or, or to be captured by nothing wrong with any of those features? But almost all of those are passive in nature. There's not an active engagement. Why is it that you come to church? And what is your perspective of church? 
even of Christianity, perhaps, you need to go back and roll it back that far and say, how do you view that? Because there's so many lies being told about that, about our, 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 our driven towards exclusivity. We claim that the only way to come by faith is by Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. And yes, we claim that. The only reason we claim that is because it's true. If it wasn't true, we wouldn't claim it. But it's absolutely true, we believe. Ah, but all religions are basically the same, and how can you be exclusive? We're exclusive about things all day long. We use mathematics. Two plus two equals four, and that's exclusive, that it's four. Unless, of course, nowadays, two and two are feeling differently, and then it might be five or six. So we use this concept of exclusivity through everything. And it's not just Christianity that's exclusive. Steve Turner, the poet, uh, underscored this point in, his po point in his poem, Creed. He says, quote, We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. That's pretty accurate. And so there is an exclusivity that we claim in Christ. There is something unique that we claim in Christianity. And this unique thing of Christianity has impacted and changed the world in so many radically different ways. And those of us who are Christians, we claim that it has also changed and done something within us as well. And we want to reduce that to just something that fills our tank or makes us happy or fixes a moment instead of seeing the wide grandeur of this that stretches throughout time and space and has reached everybody at everywhere at some point in time will. It was a belief system and a grouping that gathered together Pharisees and Roman centurions in fellowship. Zealots and tax collectors, people that were so opposite at the ends of the political extremes they should have normally killed each other, and yet they become brothers and they become sisters. If that can happen, why can't Republicans and Democrats just shut up long enough to become in fellowship within the church? Why can't those of different races find reconciliation? And we are told you can within the church. It changed how people thought and felt about one another and about themselves and about the universe around them. In the second century, Justin Martyr said of his fellow Christians, quote, we who hated and destroyed one another and on account of their different manners would not live with men of a different tribe. Now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies. Another one said, we love one another with a mutual love because we don't know how to hate. You know, too often we find within the church a great capacity for that. So if the church is not these other items, if it's not a theater, if it's not a, 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 a drugstore, if it's not a gas station or these other items, what is the church? What illustration can we reach for to grasp, to bring some understanding as to why something is screwed up as we often are and as failed as we often get still has something of significance to be a part of? I'm finding myself drawn to Earl Palmer. He's an author and a former pastor and he countered the critics who would rail against the church for its hypocritical, scandalous, often irrelevant footprint in culture by saying this. When California's Milpitas High School Orchestra attempts Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, he said, the result is appalling. 
He said, I wouldn't be surprised if the performance made old Ludwig roll over in his grave despite his deafness. You might ask, why bother? Why inflict on those poor kids the terrible burden of trying to render what the immortal Beethoven had in mind? Not even the great Chicago Symphony Orchestra can attain that level of perfection. My answer, he said, is this. The Milpitas High School Orchestra will give some people in that audience, for some people in this audience, in that audience, it will be their only encounter with Beethoven's great Ninth Symphony. Far from perfection, it is nevertheless the only way that they will hear Beethoven's message. He's pointing out that the only way that a starving, thirsty, deluded, and suffering world will ever hear the music of the gospel is through the body of Christ. Through you and through me. And that though arguably, we collectively are the Worst high school orchestra ever. If performance standards are what the church is to be judged by, then we're in trouble. If grace doesn't exist, if only the truly self-righteous make it, But if grace does exist, if those of us who have been broken in our sin have found salvation in Christ and the movement within the Holy Spirit of our own lives that have drawn us first to Christ but then next to one another to weave us into a unique community, a unique relationship, if we recognize that God's determined to trade the perfection of his solo performance that he could do perfectly, but he's traded that for the possibility of playing a little bit of an improvisational tune with you and me. And yes, we are the screechy saxophone that plays off key. But he chooses to use you and me. That's not a point of arrogance or pride. It's a point of brokenness on our part. But there's something important in the midst of this conversation we should point out there's a, a river down Louisiana way called the Atchafalaya River, I think it is. It's 137 miles long, and a lot of things are on the side of it and draw water from it, and et cetera, et cetera. It has a real impact. It's a distributory of the Mississippi. What it means is it doesn't have its own water source. It's utterly dependent upon the Mississippi. When the Mississippi's high, the Atchafalaya is high. When the Mississippi is low, the Atchafalaya is low. It's completely dependent upon its source. This is also true of the church. We are utterly and completely, totally dependent upon the source, which is Jesus Christ. As long as we lean into that, as long as that is at the source of who we are, then yes, even with our poor playing abilities, even with the rest, there's still something that surges within this. Now here's a question I have for you. If someone asks you today, what did you do for an hour at 11 o'clock on Sunday? The natural response you're going to have probably is to say, well, I went to church. If I could have titled this differently from just the title of the church, I would have said, don't go to church. You see, we go to the mall. We go to the mechanic. 
we go to various stores in various places, and then we also go to the church. And all this means a service type thing. But if we go to church, if we are involved as the church, it means something drastically different. Now you have a certain perception that in this next second, I want to try to demolish that perception and bring something else into play. Why do you go to church? We used to say years ago in this church, this gathering place, we used to say, we don't go to church. We are the church, some of you remember. And we don't say that as like, we are the church. We say that with brokenness and humility. You see, if you just go to church, then you're just a passive receiver. You're a consumer of products, and you're going to search for whatever will satisfy that. And so pastors become performers or CEOs because people seek that out. And they assure that and reaffirm that. And the church, as a result, becomes something completely different than the gospel. It gets driven by other agendas and issues. And in pursuit of the, of the, of the, of the culture, they become a reflection of the culture. Or they retreat so far within themselves that they can't connect with the culture. Somewhere the church is called to be in the world, but not of the world. And if we understand that as followers of Christ, sourced by Christ, driven by Christ, connected to Christ, that through that the church is formed, that we can't burn brightly off on our own. We need each other. That then we approach a gathering such as this with an active perspective instead of a feed me, Seymour, approach. Do you go to church or do you have some understanding of what it means to be the church? In this time of the pandemic, have you grown more separated from the things of God or has there been a greater thirst in you to draw and pursue those things? For my one young friend, the church changed from a building to meaning a community. But I guarantee that for many others, it has changed from a community to just being a building and they can watch it from the comfort of their home or deal from others. And I'm not condemning those of you who are doing that now. There are reasons I believe that you're doing that for, but there's a time when that needs to end there still needs to be a gathering of the congregation of people. In the center of all this is Christ. And if there's one thing that's defined the church, it should be that we worship. Do you understand what it means to worship God? Have you encountered through, through Scripture or, or through whatever circumstances something that has just so amazed you and caught you that you sit here and say, God is amazing. I remember not only my first moment when I accepted Christ and how that changed my thinking and my process and the, and the line I crossed in faith to do that, but I remember holding my first child and the sudden weight of being a father and it transformed my thinking. I remember walking up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and seeing something so vast, it just completely, with all my travels and experience, overwhelmed me even though I'm standing on solid ground, that I felt shaky. It was so vast. I could not imagine that. I've been on a quiet night and watched up at the stars and realized the vastness of the universe and how small I am in light of that. 
you have not caught the grandeur of who we worship, I honestly don't know what to tell you. To be the church means that we don't go to a building, but we are part of something, whether we're in the building or not. It means that we walk with a humility and a brokenness, not an arrogance or a pride, but with a strength and a boldness at the same time. It means that we care for one another. But at the core of it, it means that we look up and we realize there's a God that is so holy and so vast and so awesome, and yet he loves us and we are completely shattered by that moment. And all we can do is fall face down like it speaks in Revelation of the angels at the end of time when all of mankind, all of creation will fall face down and just worship God. That time is coming. And that's what it means to be the church. So Father, this morning as we come before you, those of us who have come to this building, but those of us who understand ourselves to be with amazement, we understand ourselves to be your church. You're called out once. And Lord, as we prepare for this time of communion, I pray, Lord, that our hearts and our minds will be stirred to the realization of exactly what it means to be your church. So as you um, encounter some people later today or tomorrow, and they say, uh, you know, so what were you doing all the weekend? How you going to answer that? Are you going to say, well, I went to church? Or you could say, well, I am the church. That should open up an interesting conversation, if nothing else. We don't go to church humbly, sometimes brokenly. We Try one more time. We don't go to church. We are the church. Process what that means. And maybe you'll approach next Sunday just a little bit differently along with the rest of your life. Father, I thank you. It is by your grace that we are what we are. And I ask, Lord, that you would let this message and the uniqueness of this time drive deep into our hearts and minds and challenge us beyond just this last hour of time. We commit these things into your hands. Guide us as your people. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And the church says,